Welcome back to a new episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Erwin Fouere, Associate Senior Research Fellow at the Center for European Policy Studies, where he focuses on the EU's role in the Balkans with a specific focus on Macedonia. Prior to joining the Center for European Policy Studies, Erwin served for 38 years with the EU institutions in various capacities, including at headquarters and the European External Action Service. His most recent appointment was as Special Representative for the Irish 2012 Chairmanship of the OSCE. In this episode, Alan and Erwin discuss a multitude of issues surrounding the European Union and the Western Balkans region, including the enlargement of the EU, particularly in relation to the Western Balkans, and the lack of consistency within EU foreign policy regarding enlargement. In addition, they examine the impediments to progress within the EU itself, the unanimity rule and what steps can be taken to mitigate its negative impacts, and what can be done about member states such as Poland and Hungary, which are departing from democratic governance and the values of the EU itself. Well, thank you. First of all, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time. And I can't think of anyone else who has more knowledge and expertise and have the insight into what's going on in the EU, specifically in connection with the integration of some of the of the Balkan states. Uh, I would like to begin with to hear your views on the internal combustion within the EU in terms of, for example, the differences between the President Macron, Merkel and others in connection with the enlargement of the EU and, and, and how that specifically is affecting the Balkan state. Um, so what is the internal discussion that's taking place now that is preventing the EU from moving forward in the process of integration of some of the EU states, of some of the Balkan states? Yes, thank you. Well, it's a very complex situation uh, and there's a big difference between the theory and the reality. The theory has always been um, up in the last years that the um, European perspective for the Western Balkans is very clear, that once they have fulfilled all the um, conditions and criteria for accession, they will become uh, members of the European Union. The reality, unfortunately, is that there has been one delay after another, uh, one commitment after another, uh, which has not been respected by the European Union side. And what you see is a gradual, I would say, increased nationalization of the enlargement process, meaning that the Commission's prerogative, uh, the European Commission's prerogative uh, in this uh, process of uh, enlargement to include other member countries um, has been undermined uh, more and more over the last years. And probably the, the most recent and the worst illustration of that uh, is the current standoff between Bulgaria and uh, North Macedonia. Yeah. Yeah. That is like exactly what you said. The promises made the, uh, in the past to the various countries in the Balkans. And obviously that is instigating nationalism within these states uh, for sure. And also they are becoming extremely more disappointed, but in the interim, in the interim, Needless to say, Russia, um, uh, China, and, and Turkey are taking full advantage 
of the fact that the EU has not moved swiftly enough and they are trying to entrench themselves in the Balkan states. Uh, and uh, needless to say, of course, there is a concern among the EU, um, the EU that there's got to be um, an effort, a greater effort made in order not to allow these three countries to further entrench themselves so much so. Uh, and also giving the disappointment of this country is the, uh, the slowness of the process. Uh, I, we could possibly get to a point where it might be, I don't say too late, but it's going to be much more difficult for, the, for these states to change gears, specifically when they are under such a, uh, in my pressure, sometimes the assistance that these countries are providing precisely because they want to distance them from the EU. That is very true. Uh, the problem is that for quite a number of years now, the European Union has taken the Western Balkans for granted. In other words, uh, the uh, accession process is there, is underway, and negotiations with uh, Montenegro and Serbia are going along, however slowly. Um, but really, deep down, the European Union is uh, more interested in security issues, making sure that uh, border management is properly controlled in order to offset any danger of another repeat of the migrant crisis of 2015, 2016. Uh, and so they really uh, underestimated uh, the uh, increasing problems uh, within the Western Balkan region itself. And this lack of visibility and lack of attention on the part of the European Union uh, has left a huge vacuum, which of course has been taken advantage of by the actors you mentioned by Russia, yes. by China and Turkey. But if you look at the reality of the economic ties, uh, over 70% of um, trade of the Western Balkans is with the European Union. So from the economic point of view, the role of Russia and China is fairly limited, except possibly in the latter uh, case, China, where the investment of China under the so-called Road and Belt Initiative has increased considerably over the past years with a huge number of projects in some 16 uh, East European countries, including the Western Balkans. But these are all loans, so this is tying the economies of the Western Balkan region in a manner which uh, is not healthy in the long run because it will mean these economies, these countries will have to service this debt over many, many years. So there are many um, fault lines that are increasing so long as the European Union's uh, commitment to the Western Balkans is not uh, maintained, is not kept. And the longer the delays, the more uncertainty there is in the uh, enlargement perspective, in the European perspective for the Western Balkans, the greater the danger that you mentioned of uh, this vacuum being taken advantage of by these other actors who have other interests uh, at stake, which have nothing to do with the real interests of the Western Balkan region. So, so, I guess that a part of the days of the delays also is connected with the EU's requirement to some extent 
that the conflict within the Balkan states, that is territorial and otherwise, need to also be somewhat um, mitigated. That is, the EU is, albeit they're not making this as a precondition, but within the, com the conflicting issues between, within the various Balkan states is obviously has an impact in terms of the integration process. To what extent you see the effect of that as far as the, uh, the future is concerned in terms of the integration uh, that is taken, that's supposed to have taken place but is not happening? You are right in highlighting the fact that in the Western Balkan region, there are many, many uh, bilateral uh, issues, bilateral disputes, border, minority issues that have yet to be dealt with. Uh, and the EU's position has been fairly consistent all along. It's probably one of the few uh, consistent aspects of the EU's enlargement policy. And that is that uh, bilateral issues uh, must be resolved prior to accession. Basically, they don't want, the EU doesn't want to a repeat of the Cyprus uh, scenario. So, um, I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, it has worked. As we have seen, uh, North Macedonia and Greece were able to resolve the issue of the name dispute. It was right. very difficult, uh, a long-standing dispute. And of course, it required very heavy uh, sacrifices and compromises, particularly on the part of North Macedonia. But they did this on the understanding that this will open the door for EU uh, accession to move forward. Unfortunately, the reality is that barely had the ink uh, dried on this agreement between Greece and North Macedonia that Bulgaria raised its own uh, issues right. and uh, has basically imposed its veto. So for me, this underlies uh, two things. Uh, one is that the European Union has really uh, underestimated uh, the, uh, the weight of history in the Western Balkan region and has uh, shown a lack of appreciation of the complexities of Western Balkan politics. And uh, instead of trying to uh, deploy its various uh, instruments of diplomacy that it has at its disposal, uh, to help in resolving some of these disputes, uh, for example, you have the special envoy of the European Union that's mediating the dispute between Kosovo and Serbia for normalization of those relations. But it hasn't done this in the other context. And what we are faced with now is that you have one member state, Bulgaria, uh, introducing notions of history and identity Exactly. which are further undermining the criteria and conditionality principles of, of the enlargement uh, uh, process of the yeah. European Union. So uh, this is, creates a very, very serious precedent. And I don't know if you recall that at last December's uh, European Council, where there should have been a green light for the opening of accession negotiations with both Albania and North Macedonia, it was Bulgaria which uh, refused uh, the green light. And then uh, they attempted to introduce into the draft 
conclusions of the uh, of the meeting of the heads of state in December, the notion of misinterpretation of history. And uh, it was thanks to the Czech and uh, Slovak governments that at the end this was prevented and they issued a statement and I, I quote because I think it's very revealing. We will not allow that the European Union be the judge of our shared history, how we identify ourselves or the language we use. These issues belong to the parties concerned and we are here to support them with experience of our own healing process. And it's a shame really that no other member state joined in that statement publicly. So uh, you have a, a situation where a, the Bulgarian position on history and identity uh, and its own version of that history and identity is now uh, seen, is on the table. And apart from the Czech and Slovak governments, none of the others are doing anything to try to help to move the process forward. And as I have said before, if we were to follow the Bulgarian logic regarding history, shared history, neither Ireland nor Britain would ever have joined the European Union exactly. community as it then was in 1973. 50 years on, we are still debating our shared history, but we are doing it in a non-confrontational manner in a shared institutional setting. And this is what Bulgaria needs to understand. It's not by vetoes that it will uh, resolve the, the bilateral disputes. Yes, they, they, but I, I think in, from our experience, uh, that is reconciling the historic narrative, uh, it's a critical. That is, for example, Germany would have not been able at all to become an EU member had it not very early on re recognized the atrocities that has committed during World War II. So it has had to face the historical record, admit that what, is, what has taken place. And that meant today to Germany is one of the, the probably the leaders of the, within the EU member states. Uh, if we take, for example, uh, the, the, the conflict between Serbia and, and Kosovo, here again, you have a Serbia who still to this day refused to admit the atrocities that it has committed against the Kosovars in the war between the two sides. That is, as long as some of these, you know, the, the, these countries may say, well, this is our problem. We have to deal with it ourselves and you have no business getting involved in this. We, we can straighten out our conflicts and our dispute. Nevertheless, that is, given the fact that they still want to become a member of the EU, and given the fact that the EU is making this a precondition, you need to settle your differences before we can begin in serious, uh, in earnest, the, the, the integration process. So here, uh, that's, that's, where the, that's where the EU is standing, and they are also taking the, the different position. How do you then reconcile between the two uh, from your perspective? Yes, it's um, a very difficult dilemma, unfortunately. The uh, Franco-German example is probably one of the best, but there are also other uh, examples of uh, joint uh, history projects, and it emphasizes the critical importance of promoting uh, projects uh, on history teaching in the uh, Western Balkan region. 
Um, and uh, the European Union has a lot of uh, experience in that if one just looks at the Northern Ireland case where uh, President Delors, Jacques Delors, instituted the uh, Peace Fund in 1995 precisely to help in the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. And uh, with financial uh, support, it has um, organized many projects, uh, joint projects between both sides of the divide in Northern Ireland in helping to overcome the prejudices of the past. And I think this perhaps is one area where the EU needs to do more in the Western Balkans to help uh, in uh, dealing with these prejudices, which are very deeply entrenched. And I think it highlights the fact that the, the weight of history is, is so strong in, in a region which, as we has often been said, produces more history than it can absorb. And it has yet to find what uh, the, our Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, has defined as an ethics of narrative hospitality. In other words, finding a mechanism which uh, can help to address the uh, entrenchments and the prejudices of the past. That, yeah, that's, and, and I, I certainly agree with you that probably the EU need to play a greater role in this kind of process of reconciliation uh, without necessarily appearing to be interfering in it. That is mitigating um, the, with a goodwill, uh, obviously it's different than interfering and imposing a certain requirement. And I think the Balkans would be right to suggest you can't impose on us how we go about to reconcile our differences, but certainly they could use the support of the EU in terms of mitigating that, those, those kind of differences. Having said that though, uh, given the fact that we are talking, to some extent, we're talking about a time element here. The, yes. uh, I mentioned Russia, Turkey, and Turkey in particular in this case, and, and China are moving ahead, trying to do everything they can to, to influence the internal affairs within Turkey in particular, uh, yes. within these Balkan states especially the countries that have a Muslim majority. Yes. Would it be wiser on the part of the EU in this case to begin a process that is, there are so many chapters that each of these countries will have to go through to be qualified to become mm -hmm. a member of the EU. So on the one hand, we have countries within the EU who are objecting, like you mentioned, Hungary versus, versus Macedonia, for example. So, so wouldn't it be wiser on the part of the EU to start the process, you know, while in the meantime asking that these countries continue to undertake the kind of reform necessary, including reconciliation with other countries, so that the process begins and gives them hope that the United that the EU is not going to wait until everything is now is in order and a proper so that they are totally qualified to become a member. But then they begin to see. We're moving ahead while now we're correcting, while we're also dealing with our internal issues, including social, economic, and political reforms. Absolutely. The logic would uh, underline uh, that approach is the correct approach. The problem is that uh, the um, European Union's enlargement policy is very much weighed and, and um, 
undermined by the internal procedural rules of the European Union, whereby anything, any decision relating to enlargement must be taken by unanimity. Uh, so you had a situation last year in March of 2020 when uh, there was uh, a decision by the European Council to formally open accession negotiations. Then the next process was the European Commission submitting the, the framework of the negotiating strategy, which was presented to the member states. And unfortunately, instead of allowing the Commission to carry on with the job, uh, there, the member states are able to, uh, again, uh, impose uh, a veto. And this is what happened with Bulgaria. Yes. In, and so you have, again, the unanimity rule interfering. And this heavy weight of procedure has been a, a huge uh, problem for uh, the enlargement agenda and has prevented uh, the negotiation to actually start. At the same time, the countries in the region are proceeding with their reform agenda. I mean, North Macedonia, as demonstrated in the various assessments made by the European Commission over the last years, uh, particularly the, the last, uh, last year itself, um, have shown that they have really fulfilled all the uh, criteria uh, and all the reforms that has been asked of them. So there is no reason uh, to delay the opening negotiations, but unfortunately we have now the situation of the Bulgarian veto preventing that to move forward. And the logic would be, as you say, that we should allow the negotiations to proceed and in parallel, try to resolve these bilateral disputes. And Bulgaria seems not to understand that you cannot resolve issues of history in a year, in two years, or three years. I mean, as I said, Northern Ireland case, Ireland and Britain are still debating our shared history 100 years down the road, and we will carry on. But we're doing it in a non-confrontational way, whereas the Bulgarian approach is extremely nationalistic and is not resolving the problem at all. Yes, and that is, and let me, that's exactly what I wanted to go back to, and that is the internal problems within the EU. That is, unanimity that you mentioned, um, in a way it has some positive elements, that is all the EU members need to have uh, a certain, say, foreign policy, uh, which is necessary to be to have some kind of uh, unanimity to some extent. But on the other hand, that is, impedes uh, and it slow the, the, the decision-making process uh, within the EU community. And that is when you allow any country for that matter to have a veto on any, on any major issue, then to some extent it paralyzes the EU from acting swiftly on matters that need to be taken care of without waiting for every single country to agree to whatever necessary step to be taken. That is something that um, has been impeding the EU effort, not just in connection with the Balkans from my perspective, but in dealing with my, other, other countries as well. Absolutely. Uh, and for example, the, the Brexit. Um, my understanding and from speaking to many you know, people in Britain, 
is that one of the reasons, one of many, but one of the main, one of the reasons is for, for example, for Cyprus uh, to have the right to veto something that may concern, say, Britain, and for the British government to to be subjected to this kind of scrutiny, this kind of uh, consensus, made it very difficult for the Britain to stay within the EU. I mean, again, there were many, many other reasons, but this is one of the reasons that is the unanimity required that has made it very difficult for especially major countries like France, like Britain, like Germany, albeit Germany is much more cooperative, to be able to continue uh, to support the EU overall agenda. Uh, but the fact remains that the decision-making process, which is slow and this can be can be stopped, vetoed by any any even the smallest member state, has has been a problem and probably will continue to be a problem. How do you see this from your perspective? How can the EU actually be able to deal with this, which has been affecting its performance um, for for years? Yes, I I'm afraid. It, the only solution will be to reduce the um, areas where decisions have to be taken by unanimity. Because if the European Union really wants to be a, a global player, uh, and it should be based on its economic weight and the uh, development assistance, etc., that it uh, provides, um, it will have to have a less burdensome decision-making process. Uh, you mentioned Brexit, but just last week we had another example where the EU foreign ministers were uh, debating a, um, a, a statement uh, to criticize the uh, Chinese uh, treatment of the Uyghurs and also the um, situation in Hong Kong. But because uh, Hungary um, claims it has a close relationship with China, uh, it blocked uh, that uh, statement uh, just purely for purely personal political agenda of uh, uh, Prime Minister Orban. So, and you can see, unfortunately, a, a growing tendency of uh, some member states like Hungary, like uh, Poland, uh, also now Slovenia, to um, undermine the, the broad principle of consensus, which served the EU well in the past. I mean, uh, the EU's role has been very, very important on, on human rights issues, uh, etc. But increasingly, uh, the EU is becoming more and more burdened because of these uh, conflicting uh, debates inside the EU and the failure uh, of the institutions to function properly. Uh, the EU, uh, the Commission should have come out much more rapidly uh, when it saw uh, the uh, rule of law issues being undermined uh, in Poland with the uh, attack on the independence of judi judiciary, also in Hungary, it delayed uh, that, uh, trying to find consensus. But as we can see, if there is no firm implementation of the uh, treaties of the European Union, uh, and if a member state is seen not to be fully respecting the uh, basic fundamental values of the European Union, it should be 
sanctioned. Uh, and But unfortunately, uh, there, the institutions of the European Union have been quite weak. And uh, more and more, we will see, I'm afraid, uh, instances where instead of taking strong decisions, the EU will have very weak decisions uh, and in foreign policy. And I think that is undermining the whole prospect of uh, the European integration in, in that area. So reducing the um, issues to be decided by uh, unanimity and increasing the possibility for decisions to be taken by majority voting, I think this would help considerably. Yeah, and this reminds me, of course, for example, countries where they have a coalition government, uh, Israel is a good example of that, where they, um, uh, when you have so many parties in a single government, uh, to some extent, similar say, to the EU to some extent, what you have there, when they discuss major significant issues, they end up with the lowest denominator. That is, the issue yes. is watered down so much so that is the, the effectiveness of it is basically uh, evaporated to some extent. So this yes. is bringing me back, to bring me to, to, to Macron. Would you say then Macron is correct to say that we do not want, we should not be now uh, um, uh, enlarged, but focus our, on our internal, that is the EU itself has issue within itself in terms of, and needs some reform. And I think, do you think Macron is correct to say, let's just focus on, on ourselves first. Let's do the kind of reform necessary before we go out and further enlarge uh, the, the, the EU when in fact we have significant internal problems that need to be addressed, which has many of these issues do relate to further integration, to further expansion of the EU. Yes, well, uh, this has been a, a recurring debate uh, over the years, a deepening versus enlarging. And I recall uh, in 2004, when you had the so-called Big Bang, when 10 uh, new countries joined the European Union, uh, it was a, an extraordinary development when you consider uh, where we had come from, you know, and helping to eliminate the dividing lies in Europe and bringing in all these new emerging democracies. Uh, there was, after 2004, a, a debate about um, how complicated this is going to make decision-making and that we need now to pause uh, the uh, enlargement process. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, you had uh, the continuing um, of the enlargement uh, with, in, in that same period, in 2003, you had the formal decision to confirm the European perspective for the Western Balkans, saying that the Western Balkans are part of Europe. We must bring them into the European Union as full members. And so there was not, there did not appear to be at that time, this contradiction between deepening versus enlarging. You could do both at the same time. And as you recall, um, as the enlargement process continued, Romania, Bulgaria joined in 2007, uh, and then negotiations were opened with Croatia. Croatia became uh, this, uh, the next member and so on. And we also had the Lisbon Treaty, 
which was negotiated and giving uh, new powers to the EU institutions, a new method of uh, foreign policy with the external action service, uh, a new high representative like an EU foreign minister, etc., etc. But it's true that now it seems that the situation has become much more complicated and complex because of this growing nationalism, populist uh, narrative within the EU itself, uh, and uh, which is in a way hijacking this uh, debate uh, and uh, is criticizing the enlargement process. Mr. The President Macron uh, has not been that consistent himself because I remember in 2018 when uh, Macedonia, North Macedonia and Greece were negotiating their agreement, he was pushing North Macedonia to say, really, you must compromise, you must find agreement because you, you, your future lies with us in the European Union. And then the following year, he blocked uh, the start of accession negotiations because he said that the methodology for negotiation was uh, needed to be overhauled. Okay, but why in that sense, in the same breath, block the uh, start of negotiations? So it, it demonstrated that there has been a lack of consistency uh, within the European Union on its foreign policy agenda relating to enlargement despite the fact that it is arguably the most successful foreign policy that the EU has ever had. Uh, and I think President Macron uh, is, a, in a sense, a, a symbol of that lack of consistency. One day is good, yes, uh, we must carry on negotiating, and then the next day, no, it's not right. And the problem is that public opinion is also a factor, and there are several countries where the public opinion on enlargement is lukewarm, whether it is France, Netherlands, and you have populist voices who tend to equate further enlargement with further immigration, uh, free movement, etc. So this populist narrative is not helping uh, the overall uh, debate uh, at the moment, and we may see again this uh, coming up next year when you have the presidential elections uh, in France with probably the same scenario of the um, uh, right wing Le Pen uh, facing uh, Macron in the, the final debate, the final roundup. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that um, I'm sure you know, you know a lot much more about this. But I mean, the prospect of Le Pen actually defeating Macron that to me doesn't seem uh, have a she has a very good prospect i mean do you share that with you i know we, this is not yeah yes absolutely i i do i i believe that in the end in the last analysis uh, president macron will will win over but the fact of the matter is that you have just those two competing forces at play uh, demonstrates you know the, the level of discussion at the moment uh, in in the eu uh, and um, so 
the 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 populist narrative unfortunately is still there uh, and so long as it is there uh, it will be used uh, to delay to offset any possibilities for continuing the the enlargement negotiations uh, with uh, with the western balkans and then in addition to that then you have the bulgarian uh, situation which in a sense is also a, a symptom or a reflection of a very nationalist narrative uh, on uh, on on issues um, separating these these neighboring countries right so when we look today the you when we talk in terms of macron talking about reform you indicated that rightfully so for example the question of consistency there is no consistency which is impeding some of the efforts of the eu in terms of uh, foreign policy or in, certainly in connection with enlargement we have the question of the shortcomings of unanimity which is very difficult and again it waters down any kind of resolution um, that the EU might want to undertake. Um, then you have the question of my uh, small um, countries like I mentioned Bulgaria does not want to condemn China because it has its own interest and that is impacting of course on the overall interest of, of the EU itself. Uh, Macron has also mentioned methodology, albeit I don't know if he elaborated on that, what kind of change we need to reach out or to um, just to engage into the integration process. And then you have the issue of growing, rising nationalism within various, um, within the countries that want to uh, become a member of the EU and within the EU itself. For example, what's happening in Poland, what's happening in Hungary, you know, that is, we also see democ democracy itself, even within its EU, it, to some extent it's in retreat by allowing certain member states to actually become almost dictatorial, and they are still member of the EU. So all of these, all of these issues are, are there. And would you say then, Macron would be correct to say, well, let's have an overall view, albeit he's not elaborating, but, but the EU itself ought to be looking at, at internally and say, well, they have all these plethora of problems, we're gonna have to address them. From your perspective, if you were to ask, and I'm sure, I'm sure they ask you, what sort of reform need to be done immediately to streamline what the, the various, you know, in the, the operation of the EU in terms of external policy, domestic, economics, um, integration, all of that. What sort of, uh, like if you can mention three, four specific reform that you think it might be necessary to undertake as soon as possible? Within the EU. Within the EU. Yes. Well, as you know, we uh, the um, conference on the future of Europe has just been launched. Uh, this is a one-year uh, process, uh, which uh, is supposed to uh, give an opportunity to all the countries, citizens uh, throughout the European Union, to come forward with uh, ideas on how. Uh, to uh, improve the uh, decision-making process, uh, the, the structure of the European Union. But um, this is fine, you know, but I, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that they will come up with some major reforms. I mean, the, the best reform that I can think of that should be done immediately is to uh, reduce the uh, areas where unanimity is required and to bring in a rule of uh, majority voting 
uh, and uh, in my view, I think this would uh, strengthen uh, the EU's decision-making process, uh, strengthen also its voice on international issues, uh, and will, would allow it to be much more functional uh, and operational than, uh, than it is now. So uh, this would be my first uh, uh, priority. Um, and I, I do believe that uh, also uh, the enlargement uh, agenda, the enlargement policy should uh, also come as a dis uh, majority decision-making rather than unanimity rule in order to offset uh, another precedent of Bulgaria or other countries wanting to uh, impose its own domestic agenda uh, on the enlargement policy. Uh, because there are many other uh, problems, bilateral problems, where, for example, Croatia might also voice its concern down the road. So this, uh, for me, is uh, some key reforms which will be extremely beneficial and we mustn't forget that the Western Balkans, to come back to them, we're not talking about billions of people. It's, it's a community of just 18 million people. It's a That's drop right. of the European Union. That's right, compared to the nearly 450 million, I suppose. Am I right? Yes. The, the combined population of the EU. You know, what you mentioned, obviously, is very important. That is, I think, a majority rule. Is that makes sense? Uh, that even even if you can say supermajority would still make it much more functional as far as the EU is concerned. If it's not 50-50, for example, you can say 60-40, and it's 60 60 percent of the EU members to vote in favor of some resolution. To, yes, yes. To, but nevertheless, this will make it entirely possible for the EU to a accelerate any kind of decision-making process in connection with any issues. Uh, there's another thing when I'll ask you, if you have a few more minutes. Yes, and that yes. is, those, those countries that uh, eventually go astray and basically are no longer uh, adhering fully to the rules, uh, norms uh, of, of the EU, um, uh, is there any effort, for example, is made by the EU to rain on, say, Poland, who is, who is a, where the human rights violation is rampant. I don't see, I haven't read, I haven't seen uh, any significant effort made by EU, some EU leadership to say to, to Poland, this is not the culture, this is not the purpose, this is not the policies that, that you know, departing from democratic form of government is not acceptable uh, to us. What effort is being made to impede this movement of nationalism within the EU to begin with, um, such as, say, Poland and Hungary, not yes. to speak, of course, outside the EU? Yes. Well, the uh, treaties provide for uh, mechanisms precisely to deal with these sort of situations where a member country would be seen to contravene the fundamental principles are the rule of law on which the European Union is based. And, that, and the rule of law is one of its greatest, has been one of its greatest strengths. The trouble is that uh, the European Commission, which is the one which has the authority to launch uh, proceedings against uh, such a member state, 
has been very slow uh, to start it. They have done it uh, with regard to Poland uh, on the uh, judicial reforms which uh, the current Polish government introduced, which have undermined the independence of the judiciary to such an extent that even the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg has uh, issued uh, judgments uh, and as well as the European Court of the European Union, um, which highlight uh, the uh, undermining of the independence of the judiciary. And similarly, proceedings have been brought against uh, Hungary. But what is the finality of these proceedings? Well, it gives an opportunity to the uh, accused uh, member country to put forward its opinions, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the, the sanction, which is the um, lifting of voting rights, has to be taken by unanimity uh, of the EU. So there again, you have a situation where uh, a procedure uh, launched by the European Union to ensure full respect of the basic principles of the European Union. Uh, in its finality, it cannot be uh, undertaken because uh, the unanimity rule means that all the member states, minus of course the accused one, must conform with that sanction. And Hungary and Poland have made very clear that they will support each other against any such sanctions. So again, we are faced with the unanimity and where a qualified majority would be a much more effective system. So we have an institutional arrangement, but the implementation remains very weak. And the, the contrary to that, the interesting is that the EU has a much stronger uh, authority uh, to impose uh, the re full respect of the basic principles for future member countries uh, and saying, if you don't uh, adopt this reform, uh, we will stop the negotiations, basically. So, but for the internal, it's a much weaker. Uh, procedure. Yeah, I mean, you can obviously make it a precondition that uh, new members will have to, to meet all the requirements, all the reform necessary, etc., etc., with an existing member who is violating the rules and regulations and, and the values um, uh, of the EU. And there is still no, me no mechanism because exactly what you mentioned, unanimity is required to punish a country that is. Uh, uh, moving away uh, from these principles that the EU upholds so high. So, and there's also, um, unless, please correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, uh, there is no provision where uh, the EU can decide to, to expel a member state for having deviated so much so from the culture and the rules and regulations and the purpose of the EU itself. So we don't have that as well. So. It's just like NATO, there's no mechanism to kick a country out of NATO. Yes. Uh, and you have the same sim similar situation within the EU. So yes. how do you overcome that when, when basically the EU gets stuck with member states who are not adhering to the culture of the EU and then they are protected by the fact that there is unanimity and nobody can do much about it. Uh, so the long-term impact on the EU is going to be, in my view, significant because it is losing its thrust 
uh, it is losing its uh, the cohesiveness necessary for the EU to project the kind of power they need to project, um, uh, especially now that there's significant effort on the part of Russia to weaken the EU as much as possible, and they're doing everything they can in that respect. Yes, I, I, I'm afraid I share your, your concern because um, even though, as I said, uh, you have the institutional mechanisms that are there uh, to deal with uh, errant um, uh, member states or member states who go totally off track and uh, you have the, what's called the nuclear option whereby uh, the voting rights of a given country can be uh, suspended. Um, and uh, you've had this big debate um, during the negotiations for the what's called the financial perspective over the, the coming seven years, whereby there was a push to try to make sure that uh, all the financial uh, support that the EU provides to member states, particularly uh, countries like Poland and Hungary, would be conditioned uh, on uh, full respect of rule of law. Uh, but this was a huge uh, debate and uh, there are some, there's some very general wording in the financial arrangements but they have yet to be tested. Um, yeah. And I think the only solution is for the institutions to be much tougher when it comes to those wayward countries and to make sure that they will uh, conform. Otherwise, you are opening the floodgates to other countries that will just follow the example of, in this case, Poland and Hungary. Uh, and um, if there's no really strong sanction, uh, it can um, it just escalate and, and get worse. And I think this would be a terrible denial of the EU integration process itself. No, no, no question. I mean, as long as they can do so with impunity, I mean, that's where the, the danger lies. That is the... Uh, among the among the uh, the efforts to reform, I think this also should be one of the main issues. That is, uh, there is some mechanism, but there is lack of implementation, um, yes. which is which is happening. You know, I have, I would love to continue this with you for another hour. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I I wanted to ask you about Turkey's prospect, which in my view is practically zero. <laughs> of becoming a member of the US, especially what Edwin has been doing for yes. the last, uh, last nearly eight, nine years now. So perhaps, perhaps we have a, a, a discussion on that some other time. Yes, uh, yes, with, with, with pleasure. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope you allow me for hopefully next year in the future to have yes. another conversation with you. Uh, specifically great. in relation to the EU, the United States, Turkey, and all of that, which would be um, something that I would love to hear your views on. With, with great pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.